this slogan and the idea of azadi has of course traveled beyond kashmir as well and in so many protests all across india you you hear this idea of azadi and of course there is a somewhat idealistic or even utopian element to it that it is but you know if we didn't dream of utopias then life would not be worth uh, living that's sanjay kak and this is alternative radio i'm david barsamyan this edition of ar features sanjay kak on azadi freedom azadi urdu for freedom is the slogan of the freedom struggle in kashmir against indian occupation abroad india promotes itself as the world's largest democracy at home the picture is quite different india's ruling bharatiya janata party the bjp led by narendra modi espouses hindutva hindu nationalism it promotes islamophobia and stifles dissent what it wants from largely muslim kashmir is submission to ensure that it has deployed hundreds of thousands of troops making the himalayan region the most densely militarized zone on earth kashmir is an unresolved issue dating back to the partition of india in 1947 for decades kashmiris have been in revolt against indian rule many tens of thousands have been killed many more have been displaced what do kashmiris want azadi freedom our guest today is sanjay kak he's a new delhi based award winning independent documentary filmmaker and journalist his films include how we celebrate freedom and red ant dream he's the editor of the books until my freedom has come and witness Welcome to the program. Thank you David. Always good to be talking to you. More than 3 years have passed since the August 5th, 2019 decree from Delhi which fundamentally changed the governance structure of Kashmir. The abrogations of articles 370 and 35 in the Indian Constitution eliminated what little autonomy Kashmir had. Explain the significance of what Prime Minister Modi did. and what has changed structurally article 370 and 35a were a set of provisions which gave um some protections to the people of the state of jammu and kashmir now as is well documented these protections were mostly symbolic in nature and uh, observed mostly in the breach rather than the observance but August 2019 marked a very vigorous effacing of those protections so for example visibly the most uh, most egregious of them was the fact that people who were not what are called state subjects which is you know people who are born or are descended from people of the state of jammu and kashmir earlier they could only they could buy land in the state after august 2019 it's open season anybody can buy land employment in the state government jobs jobs for school teachers again these were only open to state subjects 
This was also removed, which means that anybody from anywhere in India is now eligible to uh, take up a job in the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Similarly, for contracts, you know, it could be a contract for collecting boulders as building material from the riverside, or it could be an industrial contact. Suddenly, it, it meant a series of protections were taken away. But much more than that, it's really that it kind of seemed like a declaration that as far as the government of India was concerned, they kind of did away with the ambiguity with which India had always dealt with the issue of Kashmir. Uh, and uh, under the BJP, they just took a unilateral kind of position that all of that uh, was wiped away at the stroke of a pen. I just want to add one thing, which is that the legality of the abrogation is hugely, hugely questionable. Only an elected assembly of the state of Jammu and Kashmir could take that decision, and that was not done. And this matter has gone to the Supreme Court of India, but not surprisingly, uh, it's been three years and uh, the Supreme Court has not found it fit to call it up for discussion. Prime Minister Modi claims that these measures uh, will lead to and have led to greater prosperity for Kashmiris. What's the economic situation uh, like in Kashmir? There is a visible and palpable things that you can see in Kashmir, and then there are those which are less visible on the economic front. Visibly, for example, tourists are flocking to Kashmir. We have seen higher numbers of tourists than, than we have seen for a decade. But tourism is a notoriously fickle and fragile industry. And if 700,000 tourists come to the state of Jammu and Kashmir, as they have done this year, uh, definitely it, it will bring some, put some money in the pockets of a range of people. But what is not often spoken about is that the backbone of the prosperity of the countryside in Jammu and Kashmir comes from agriculture and in particular from horticulture. Kashmir has been now for almost 30 years supplying apples to uh, all of North India. Now, suddenly we see that there are always some obstacles in the path of these apples leaving the valley. This year in particular, uh, there's a single highway that connects the Kashmir Valley with the rest of India, and it heads to the town of Jammu in the plains. And there was a time only about 10 days ago when there were more than 8,000 trucks lined up to get onto that highway because the road was, so to speak, down. And that road seems to go down with an alarming frequency, particularly when the apple crop has to get out and it's a perishable crop. It needs to make it to the cold storages of Northern India. So I think that, um, you know, if, if for example, uh, doing wonders for the people of Kashmir on the economic front was a goal of the, uh, of the Indian government, then certainly a greater attention ought to be paid to fields such as horticulture and agriculture, which really sustain the economy of the Kashmir Valley. So, on the whole, I would say that um, there is a lot of talk around what has been done for the people of Kashmir, but on the ground, uh, I think the abrogation of Article 370 and the general silence that envelops that valley 
has not done good for the economy of the region. Kashmir is also being promoted as a wedding uh, destination. According to um, Ganjan Bansal, she told the newspaper Greater Kashmir that Kashmir offers you everything that you want in a wedding de destination, charm, history, elegance, beauty, serenity. Talk about particularly that last des descriptive adjective, serenity. How serene is the valley, which has been called the most densely militarized zone on earth? So this is connected to our uh, the early, your earlier question, which is that tourism and of course, the, the wedding destination, the talk about a wedding destination is closely tied in to tourism. Uh, this is an old conundrum. How do you understand the fact that you can have a summer in the state of or the in the city of Srinagar where tourists are riding, uh, you know, the traditional shikara boats on the surface of the uh, Dal Lake? while not far from there, there's a gun battle between militants and paramilitary soldiers. So somehow tourism and the arrival of tourists has always been conflated in this narrative that is supported by what we call New Delhi as a sign of normality. And normality is supposed to be uh, the absence of conflict, the dissipation of uh, political struggle. I wouldn't get too excited by the both by the numbers of tourists or this talk about the serenity of Kashmir providing a kind of ambience for wedding destinations because Kashmir is not Bali. Uh, we must remember that there's an ongoing conflict. I don't think that if you look at the press reports, I don't think a week goes by without at least two or three um, armed encounters between militants and security forces. Um, and uh, it, it might well be that mostly these are young, not very well-trained uh, rebels who almost invariably die by the end of the day. But it tells, it's an indication that there is a whole lot of, uh, there is a conflict going on there. And I think to dress it up or put this layer, confect a layer on top of it with uh, talk of tourists or, or now, you know, wedding uh, destinations. I think this is, I think it has to be seen for what it is. It's a spin. When was the last time you were in Kashmir? Unfortunately, I think it's been more than about eight months. But, what about um, uh, your freedom of movement? Were you able to move around freely? So, yes, David. I mean, someone like myself, I mean, I have to point out that, you know, I, my name is Sanjay Kak. I mean, um, if, if I bore a Muslim name, perhaps I, I might have a different experience. Also, um, I am protected by, you know, the kind of work I do. I can move around freely, but that's not the thing we should be talking about. What we should be talking about is how constrained those who live and work there are. I certainly know, for example, that journalists in Kashmir are having a very, very difficult time. This has been written about. Um, it's not a secret. Um, the local media has been hobbled to an unimaginable degree to the point where they now uh, mostly carry the kind of story you referred to just now, which is Kashmir as a wedding destination. And, and it wouldn't have surprised me if it was a front page story. Whereas 
everything else uh, is hardly reported or reported very briefly in the inside pages. So what was once, and you know, maybe not so long ago, maybe five years ago, very vibrant media scene in Kashmir is now completely uh, compliant. So that's one. Journalists, that's the local media scene. And, and journalists who uh, write and report for, let's say, newspapers and portals in India or internationally, they're having a very difficult time. They are often called in for questioning. They are harassed. They're sometimes their families are harassed. The, one of the few spaces available to journalists, particularly freelance journalists in Srinagar, was a small press club. And uh, I think last year it was, it was just shut down without any announcement. So basically freelance journalists don't have a place to meet other journalists and it hobbles them even further. So that's one, that is that journalism has been very badly hobbled. Um, the civil society space is also considerably under pressure. Um, you know that Kurram Parvez, who was the convener of the Jammu Kashmir Coalition of Civil Societies, has been in prison for more than a year. Charges have just been filed, but there has been nothing, there has been no further progress there. It's not simply that he has been arrested, but other people are being questioned, so under a lot of pressure. And there are many other civil society spaces. People have, have just quietened down. In the political space, and you know, as you know, in Kashmir, uh, those who stand for elections, who, who are called uh, the pro-India parties, so to speak, uh, which means that these are people who still uh, feel that elections might re yield some results. And many of those politicians, after a lifetime of swearing uh, loyalty to India, ended up uh, spending close to a year in prison. This includes at least three former chief ministers, Farooq Abdullah, his son Omar Abdullah, Mehbooba Mufti, and hundreds of other uh, politicians. And here I'm not talking about what um, Kashmiris refer to as separatists. These are what we might call unionists, those who are not questioning the accession uh, of Kashmir to India. So in almost every sphere, and of course there are other spheres which is the information is only anecdotal, uh, the pressure on school teachers, the pressure on college uh, teachers. Um, there's a kind of uh, very huge um, sort of disciplining of that population that's going on. So while you and I might be able to, uh, well, I, I can only speak for myself, David, I know you won't be allowed to go there, um, can move around and speak to people that's only half the story because the silence and the, the deathly silence that you encounter there is so, so depressing and enervating, you know, because it's, it's a, not a happy place to be right now. You mentioned Khuram uh, Purvey's uh, Time magazine named him among the 100 most influential people in 2022. I dare say hardly anyone knows who he is in the United States, uh, for example. I interviewed him the last time uh, I was in Kashmir in early 2011, and we drove around, we throughout the valley, he took me to many places. In September of that same year, when I returned to India, I was denied entry at Delhi airport. 
cause and effect? Who knows? Now, in your introduction to Witness, a book you edited, in your very first sentence, you pose the question, when you have had enough of paradise, what then? What were you thinking with that question? So um, Kashmiris are kind of exhausted by uh, mostly Indians reminding them that they live in paradise. And in some senses, if you were to look at it superficially, it is. As you know, it's a beautiful place, lakes, mountains, rivers, very bountiful agriculture, a range of horticultural products, fruit, a great tradition of handicrafts. So it is a very blessed place. And of course, the, the use of the word paradise comes particularly from the Emperor Jahangir, who said to have, when he arrived in Kashmir, said, if there is paradise on earth, it is this, it is this, it is this. But I think uh, being reminded of it as a paradise really um, gets up the wick of young Kashmiris because that is not how they encounter their Kashmir. They encounter it as a terribly militarized space. They encounter repression. They encounter silencing. So, which is why, I mean, as much as they love Kashmir, this is not their notion of paradise. As one young man once said, he said, it might be paradise to you, but for me, it's home, <laughs> you know? And you don't want your home to be a place as troubled and disturbed as Kashmir happens to be. Now, with that uh, 2019 decree from Delhi, it broke off uh, not just Kashmir, but Jammu and Ladakh as well, which they were all three components of the state of Jammu and Kashmir. So they're all being run from Delhi now as union territories? So uh, basically, actually, uh, David, what happened was there was there was a bifurcation, which is Ladakh was hived off. Um, and Ladakh is now not run by a popularly elected government. It's elected, uh, uh, it's run by New Delhi through a lieutenant governor. And the Valley of Kashmir and the area of Jammu are together also ruled directly by what's called central rule through a lieutenant governor. So what was once one zone is now two. And both are um, administered by, central, by the central government. And both have not had elections. I think under the new provisions, Ladakh doesn't even have the provision for an assembly. Jammu and Kashmir has a provision for an assembly, which means theoretically they could be elections, but I think they are already grossly overdue. Um, but it's a it's an indication of the fact of, that conditions are far from normal, that elections are not being called. Um, and I just want to pause here to point out that Ladakh has, uh, since August 2019, uh, been drawn into a much larger conflict space. Um, if traditionally, um, the state of Jammu and Kashmir, which included Ladakh, uh, was principally seen in the, in, in the Indian perspective as a conflict between uh, Pakistan and India, a kind of unresolved byproduct of the partition of India. 
What happened when the government of India abrogated Article 370 and 35A is that the Chinese declared that, well, then all bets are off because the Ladakh is disputed according to them. Uh, Ladakh for them is also disputed legacy of, of British India. So the, in the following years, we have seen a heightened uh, sort of posturing on the Chinese side. They have been pushing uh, forward, moving into areas which were traditionally either buffer or firmly said to be controlled by India. There have been on and off clashes and there have been casualties on both sides. So I want to point out that one of the serious and underappreciated consequences of what happened to Jammu and Kashmir in August 2019 was the opening of a new front. So that now uh, in what was the former area of Jammu and Kashmir, we don't, it's not simply India dealing with Pakistan, but India also dealing with, with China on the equally contentious claims uh, over Ladakh. And that is a conflict that is probably as expensive for India as the one in Jammu and Kashmir, because these are very high altitude deserts. These are areas where graziers traditionally went in summer and came away very quickly at the onset of winter. But now you have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers who spend uh, most of the year up there, often that includes the winter, at altitudes of 12, 13,000 feet. It's a very dire situation for armies on both sides, you know, both in, in the case of China and of India. And India has joined the US-led Quad. Uh, this is a quasi-military alliance directed toward China, which includes India, the United States, obviously, Australia and Japan. Yes, absolutely. And there is no doubt in my mind that underlying the aggression shown by the Chinese, um, it's not simply uh, about uh, the historically unsettled matter of Ladakh. It's also a kind of a posturing to sort of remind India about China's role in the region and it's India's ambitions to be a kind of a counter. I think in the imagination, certainly of the Quad, uh, India is there as a kind of counter to China. Uh, and the Chinese are recognizing that. And I think, um, you know, that some of their aggression certainly has to do with that. You know, although one, one can, it can only be a, a, a calculated guess, but it, it would make sense. I think it's fair to say that uh, Islam Islamophobia is very strong in India. There are uh, lynchings, beatings, murders, and more recently bulldozing of Muslim homes and businesses. India at the same time has, of course, Bollywood, this incredibly huge uh, movie industry, which curiously has Muslim superstars like Shah Rukh Khan, like Amir Khan and, and others. Do they ever speak out against Islamophobia and what's happening to Muslims in India? David, traditionally, Bollywood has been um in some senses, an exemplar of this kind of what we call, uh, you know, Mili-Juli Sanskriti, which is this mixed up culture that we are all part of. So traditionally, it was a place which had Muslim scriptwriters, directors, 
Um, there's Amir Khan, there's Salman Khan, there's Shah Rukh Khan, you know. So in that sense, it's been that place where that the idea of an India, um, an inclusive idea of India has been sustained, not necessarily always in the films they make, but in the culture of production of that place. So for example, the Urdu language um, has survived for a very long time because Bombay uh, songwriters uh, were very steeped in the Urdu language. Now, that has now for some years been, un seems to be under a kind of coordinated attack. And so not only, I mean, for example, the slightest of provocations from any of the, of the superstars um, can have quite serious consequences. So the actor Amir Khan, for example, about a few years ago at the height of, at the time when several of these things that you have referred to, the lynchings and killings were, had begun, he very casually made a statement about the insecurity that, that Muslims felt and how living in India was something that you thought about. It was not a very political statement, David, and you know, it was just made probably in the heat of the moment. But the consequences of that were that his films, Amir Khan's films, were, have been boycotted. And most recently, he put out a, an adaptation of Forrest Gump. And it was accompanied by a very serious media campaign to uh, basically boycott it. So I think the, the space available for people in the Bombay industry to speak up about issues of the relations between Hindus and Muslims or the position of Muslims is actually very, very narrow. Uh, I would say it's almost zero. And because there are huge economic stakes, it's not just what a, a star thinks, you know, there are millions of dollars in investment riding on them. So uh, it doesn't matter what they think, they have to be very quiet. We don't have, David, the equivalent uh, of what I think um, certainly the film industry in the US and Hollywood has, which is we don't have people who break ranks and speak up because the consequences here are very severe. I mean, I know the consequences have been severe for um, you know music celebrities in the US as well, but I have a feeling, and I mean, I'm not very well informed about the United States, but that's probably something that faded away with the 60s and 70s, you know? I don't think that Elvis Presley's records would be crushed by bulldozers today. Uh, I might be wrong. Well, uh, talk about a movie that came out in March of this year called The Kashmir Files. It opened in 600 cinemas across the country. Uh, you wrote about it uh, for Al Jazeera. The filmmaker has insisted that, and I'm quoting, Every frame, every word in my film is truth. No less an authority than Prime Minister Modi endorsed the film saying, all of you should watch it. The film has shown the truth, which has been suppressed for years. The truth prevailed in the Kashmir files. Now you describe this film as a visceral demonization of the Kashmiri Muslim. Could you talk about that? So uh, the film Kashmir Files, and David, we are in a bit of a bind here because often uh, friends and colleagues will say, why do you even talk about it? Because it's such a piece of propaganda, then why should we waste time about, over it? 
But I think that um, having seen the film and having written about it, I don't think it's appropriate to ignore it because it contains within it a kind of worldview which I think is increasingly being patronized by the right wing in India, and therefore it's very important to try and understand it. You know, so ostensibly the Kashmiri Kashmir Files, the film, attempts to tell the story of the departure of the Hindu minority of Kashmir in the early 1990s. Now, this is a very, very uh, sensitive, highly contested, but completely understudied phenomenon. So the numbers uh, for how many people left can range from 120,000 to 500,000 to a million. And the, one of the reasons why we don't have any, we don't have a grip on it is because the state refuses to open up its records on this. So it's kind of like a, a dark zone in which everybody is free to make whatever statement they want. But what this film does is that it tries to nail that down and suggest that it was nothing less than a kind of pogrom, a very violent pogrom that led to this departure. What is not being contested is that there was a departure. You know, all of us know that. And that anywhere up to 200, 220,000 people left the Kashmir Valley in the 1990s. Okay. And I say that very deliberately. I do not mean in the month of January 1990. You know? But the film posits it as a, uh, an Islamic upsurge, which was directed at them and causing them to leave, and there is violence, there are killings, there is rape, there's pillage. Did any of this happen? Yes, there were a few incidents of rape. Were people killed? Yes, at least a few hundred Kashmiri Hindus were killed. Was there pillage? Yes, there were homes that were uh, burnt down. But was it widespread and was it almost like a universal? Well, then the answer is no. But what this film does is, more dangerously, it very systematically and subtly suggests that everybody was in cahoots in hiding what happened there. Okay. So, for example, if you say that, I think the records show that 260 Kashmiri Hindus were killed, then the answer is, well, because those are police records and the police was in cahoots with the uprising. Or if you say, well, there is no media report of those years which describes these incidents. Well, then you'll be told because the media was in cahoots. So what it suggests is that history no more is about anything which is verifiable, either through official records or through the media records or for any other form of record. History is what someone asserts. So if I tell you there was a pogrom in Kashmir in January 1990, causing 500,000 people to flee and killing 10,000 people, well, you've got to take my word for it. So I find that in this, uh, and of course, uh, you're right to point out that the film received enormous state patronage and not just the prime minister's endorsement, but state governments uh, made it tax-free, which is a huge incentive uh, uh, for, for people to go to films because the tickets become very cheap. Corporates 
gave people the afternoon off to go and see the film. So in every way, it became like an official uh, film. And the filmmaker's assertion that every frame is true kind of became uh, uh, like a, something that everybody then took up saying, yes, this is the truth. This is the truth. Uh, but embedded in it was, like I pointed out, more than that. It's a view. It's a way of dealing with history. It's a way of dealing with the past which the right wing increasingly is using in India, which is to say, we don't have to go by evidence. We have to go by pe what people feel or what people tell you, that's the problem. That kind of attitude seems to be reflected in no less a country than the world's second largest democracy, the United States. You're listening to Sanjay Kak, on Azadi, Freedom. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program and Arundhati Roy's book, Azadi, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. But in this uh, film, the, the other thing that's obscured, which you point out, is that what happened in Kashmir in the 1990s, I'm quoting from your article, was not centrally a conflict between Muslims and Hindus. It was an uprising against the Indian state. That's absolutely central to my objection to the film and to the um, to making the departure of Kashmiri Pandits central to the Kashmir issue. In India, you cannot have a conversation about Kashmir without this matter coming up. And part of the reason is that it's used to block off conversation on the, on the fact that it was principally a political uprising. It may have been an uprising of Muslims, because 95% of the population of the Kashmir Valley are Muslims. It may have been led by uh, figures who had religious, uh, who belonged to religious organizations, but it was not directed at Hindus. It was not directed at Kashmiri Hindus, or what I call Kashmiri Pandits. So to focus on that is to um, make a very short connection between the visceral Islamophobia that is generated by, for example, the, the, you know, of labeling people as members of ISI or ISIS or whatever it is called, and what happened in Kashmir. In, so it's kind of using Kashmir for something which is not in the best interests of either the Kashmiri people, or the, which includes both Hindus and Muslims, and certainly not in the best interests of the truth. Now, you happen to be, as you mentioned, a Kashmiri Hindu, a pundit. Have you encountered, uh, let's say, any hostility, etc.? Yes, and I have. And I think one of the ways in which people uh, deal with me is to say, oh, he's not a Kashmiri pundit, really. His family are deracinated. Uh, they don't, um, so like, just to write me off. But I claim a position on account of the work that I have done and, and the time that I've invested in trying to understand the place. Talk about the media in India today. It's been called the Godi media. Explain what that 
Godi Media means. It's a play on, on the name of Narendra Modi and uh, Godi means a lap. So literally the media, which is in the lap of the prime minister for the last six, seven, eight years, we have seen the emergence of a completely partisan, uh, totally pro-government uh, corporate media. But I think, I feel that some of it might be changing. Some of the very popular, uh, I'd call them hate figures who spent all their time on their channels, kind of denouncing people and in vituperation have gradually, uh, they're losing ratings. Um, and to return to the, to the film Kashmir Files, it's very interesting that the first reaction against the film was not by Kashmiris, not by Kashmiri Muslims, not, not by someone like me, but it was by Indians who were outraged at the portrayal and they could see through it. I think the presumption that controlling the media and a continuous state of spin will continue to give you returns into eternity, I don't think that's a very sanguine way of looking at things. I think that these have diminishing returns and at the same time, what it has done is that it has engendered a new crop of media options, web-based portals, you know, you have scroll, you have the wire, you have article 14. So in, in the Hindi language, there are literally hundreds of small media initiatives. People who, who are trying to, to arrest sort of the juggernaut of Hindutva, uh, they're not trying to anymore engage with the mainstream media or they just laugh at it. So, you know, Godi Media is a figure of great fun on the internet. And I'm continuously amazed by how many people have so much energy to have such a blast uh, and making fun of them. And I'm always encouraged by that because it, it, it means that people haven't just rolled up and died. To be able to make fun suggests that you still have life in you. So while this overwhelming control of the media is a very worrying thing, I see some hope in the fact that through the cracks, other options seem to be emerging. It, it's quite interesting. For example, we have this uh, one channel called Republic TV, which is particularly, if you do tune into it, you'll see that no respectable commentator shows up on that channel anymore because it's like nobody wants to be tainted by such obvious hate and prejudice on a daily basis. And until a few years ago, all kinds of people, both on the right and left, used to show up there, but now even they have stopped. You use the term Hindutva. Can you define it? Yeah, so Hindutva is the term that has begun to be used in India to describe this political form uh, which the ruling party in India, the Bharatiya Janta Party, the BJP, and its intellectual and in all ways progenitor, the RSS, the Rashtriya Swamsevak Sangh, to their formulation of Hinduism as a kind of all-enveloping philosophy and a, a political and a political philosophy. So we tend to use the term Hindutva um, to distinguish it from Hinduism itself, which is a much broader thing and 
many of the people who oppose Hindutva are Hindus. Now, Modi was elected in 2014 and re-elected in 2019. What is the base of his support? What parts of India's 1.4 billion people support him? What is his appeal? India's electoral politics, national electric pol politics, is um, quite skewed in favor of the northern part of India, and in particular, what we uh, refer to as the Hindi belt, which is ranges from Rajasthan through Haryana to the, uh, Uttar Pradesh uh, to Bihar. And this is the most populous part of the country, and therefore it has higher representation in our parliament. And therefore, whoever controls the Hindi belt pretty much controls Indian politics. So even now, Narendra Modi might have convincingly won two elections, but in terms of the popular vote, he doesn't have uh, you know, more than 37% of the vote the BJP did not get. So I think that uh, in the South, they, they have not been able to penetrate areas like states like Kerala or Tamil Nadu. They have had alliances with some states but very kind of fragile alliances. So they have a fragile alliance in, in the eastern state of Odisha. They have a fragile, they had a fragile alliance in the state of Bihar. So while from the outside and for all practical purposes, it's a government that looks rock solid till the end of the ages, actually it's not. It's because he has this tremendous appeal as an icon of Hindutva, which we talked about and a man who will correct the wrongs of what Muslim rule has done to India, which is a fiction that they have been able to very successfully plant in the minds of people. So he's seen as the kind of figure who will rescue Hindus from the ignominy and the shame of, of those years. So this is not unfamiliar from other parts of the world, uh, the deploying of, of these kinds of tropes. And he is so far been able to not just win the elections, but ride over the most sort of egregious incidents of maladministration and misgovernance. For example, we went through a terrible, uh, what was called the, the demonetization of our currency, which caused great distress. Literally, it was announced overnight as a means to do away with corruption and black money, as it's called, unaccounted money, illegal money. But it did nothing like that for the, those who have that kind of money, but it certainly impoverished the poor. Now, we had COVID, where the sluggish response of the Indian government, including its initial reluctance to even get into the business of providing vaccines, caused tremendous distress to large numbers of people. But because of this larger appeal, um, uh, you know, to the, the Hindutva in, in northern India, his government is always able to spring back. And of course, they are very ably assisted by a very pliant uh, media, you know, so that, that combination of people who are willing to cut him slack and then supported by this massive media machinery, which continuously pushes out that message that we find that um, he, he has a continuing appeal.
RSS is the acronym for the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh. It's going to be marking its centenary in 2025, but its roots are rather interesting and, and largely unknown its roots in European fascism. Their roots are very much in India, but its sort of intellectual resources certainly draw from European fascism, you know, a great admiration even at one point with Hitler. And for example, much of the language that they deploy about Muslims and how they are to be dealt with, you can see a straight line from, uh, you know, Nazi Germany and their views of how the Jewish question was to be settled. So there is a very um, frightening genealogy of ideas. And of course, um, it remained a shadowy and underground almost organization for the best part of these 100 years. But um, it, it, its penetration is enormous and its resources are incredible. Uh, financial resources, and even globally. So it is a very powerful organization, very centralized. It has very dedicated cadres. So overall, it's not, not an organization to be dismissed. It has to be taken very seriously. And like all such things, it does represent one way of thinking in India. If the BJP and the X is not ever been able to get more than 37% of the, percent of the vote uh, in India, well, then that's telling you something. That yes, there is a, a, an element in Indian society who has bought into their uh, philosophy, but we don't know whether that's permanent and how temporary it is. Uh, but they are, they are a force to be taken seriously. And I think it's only now that the Western media is beginning to get the drift on this one and begin to report on India with some sense of an understanding of what Narendra Modi represents, what the BJP represents, and what the RSS represents. Well, would you call those formations, the political party, the RSS, and Modi as fascistic? I think that there is enough in the way that they have been uh, operating, which would allow me to say yes. And I think sometimes even people on the left, uh, you know, kind of get all entangled on does it meet all the conditions of fascism or does it not meet the conditions of fascism? And clearly we can't wait till, you know, people are being uh, shipped off to gas chambers before we say that, yeah, this is fascism. But there is, as they say, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it is a duck. So I think in the same way, um, I would certainly say that, yes, there's every indication that they are fascistic. Arundhati Roy says that India today is, quote, a dangerous place where a deeply flawed, fragile democracy has transitioned openly and brazenly into a criminal Hindu fascist enterprise. Did the farmers' revol revolt, which succeeded to some extent, the, the Modi regime had to roll back three very unpopular laws. Uh, it remains to be seen if they're going to reintroduce them. But uh, did you derive any uh, strength or inspiration or hope from that particular movement? Or was that a one-off not to be replicated? No, I think it was a very, very important event. 
it was right at the doorsteps of the city of New Delhi. And for close to 10 months, if no, 11 months, uh, farmers camped there and they put up an exemplary display of what a certain kind of nonviolent protest could be like. Um, I think it was remarkable for several reasons, including the fact that it didn't have the overt marks of any of the um, you know, visible political parties that we know of. Broadly speaking, uh, one large section of it was oriented towards the left, but overall it was a really a people's movement. The money for it, the resources for it were raised amongst the farmers. And it, there was a certain, um, how should I say, uh, refusal to play ball, which I think gave out a message to people that if you know you have to know your strengths, you have to argue uh, and fight your fight from a position of strength, and then you have to stick with it. So I think, yeah, that it was one of the most heartening things that has happened in India in recent years. And I'm sure it has had an implication for people all over the world. Well, you said the farmers' um, tactic was nonviolence. That wasn't the tactic of the state. Uh, hundreds of farmers were killed. Yeah, th that did happen. No, I, I'm not sure exactly how many were killed, but they were often beaten up and their protests were targeted. But eventually, just with their staying power, they managed to override that. So there was an enormous dignity which uh, somehow such political events, we tend to rob people of their dignity, but they, this protest managed to keep their dignity and that was really quite an incredible achievement. The 2022 Global Hunger Index has just come out and India ranks 107th out of 121 countries. What happened to all the prosperity uh, as exemplified by uh, this full page article in the New York Times, uh, extolling the virtues of a, of a suburban area of Delhi. A dynamic new scene in Delhi is the name of the article. Galleries, bars, and clubs are popping up in three neighborhoods on the city's edge, drawing art lovers, fashionistas, and nightlife seekers. So there's that other India of glamour, and then there's the reality of what the Global Hunger, Hunger Index indicates. Absolutely, David. I mean, you know, in a sense, this contradiction has been part of India now for almost 20 years, which is that we have a, uh, an upper middle class, which has created a fabulous lifestyle for itself and uh, wants for nothing, lives in gated communities or lives in apartment blocks where they're protected from the dirt and grime of everyday India. They have, you know, a whole world in which to inhabit. The other 80% or 90% of India, where these figures come out of, whether it has to do with hunger, whether it has to do with the absence of medical cover, uh, things continue to be atrocious. This is not new, but what is interesting is that you can have a week in which both these things can come out and be part of the same page, literally. You know, we can talk about the uh, rich uh, enjoying the suburbs and the art galleries of uh, South Delhi, and you can also have India going further down in the hunger index. Nothing is new. I mean, we know that 
redistribution has not been on the agenda of anyone in Indian politics for a very long time. And so while India has been growing, the profits of that growth have been going to a very small layer. We began with Kashmir. Let's end with Kashmir. The chant one hears during protests in Kashmir is, Hum kya chate? What do we want? And the response is, Azadi, freedom. Talk about Azadi. Is it some elusive dream? What would Azadi look like in Kashmir? Well, I think it could begin to be a, a space which was demilitarized. It can only begin from there. And it can be a place where democracy returns. Only if you, if you have a space which is demilitarized, can you have a free and fair election. And then you could perhaps use elections as a means of understanding what is it that people really want. Because this is a, a place which has been in an, in an upsurge for more than 30 years. So we do need to know what exactly is it that people now want. And what is interesting is that this slogan and the idea of Azadi has, of course, traveled beyond Kashmir as well. You know that in the student protests in Delhi, this used to be a very popular slogan. And even in, the, uh, in so many protests all across India, you, you hear this idea of Azadi. And of course, there is a somewhat idealistic or even utopian element to it. There it is. But you know better than I do that if we didn't dream of utopias, then uh, life would not be worth uh, living. So I would say, yes, there is a utopian element to it, but why not? You've carved out a career, I may say, a successful career in documentary filmmaking and, and writing. What fuels your creative juices? I would say it begins with curiosity and a desire to sort of make sense of something for myself. And then I'm going to use a strange word, but uh, a little bit of a of an arrogance that, hey, I think I have an interesting way of sharing this story. So maybe I should. I think it, it's that uh, old little fire, David, which you have had plenty of and you've done a lot with. So I don't need to labor over this point with you. You know it well. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much, David. Always a pleasure to talk to you. You were just listening to Sanjay Kak on Azadi, Freedom. I talked with him in mid-September. Sanjay Kak is an award-winning independent documentary filmmaker and journalist. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Noam Chomsky, Tarek Ali, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and Chris Hedges. And we have a series of programs on Kashmir. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Sanjay Kak on Azadi, Freedom, and for Arundhati Roy's book, 
Azadi. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. We go out with protest demonstrators in Kashmir chanting, Azadi, freedom.